The conventions are over. The fall campaign is in the offing. It's time to check in on the politics of 2016 on Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History. And this is Natalie Navarre, the archivist for the Center for Oral and Public History, reminding listeners to stay tuned after the Reflections on the Election segment with Dr. Benjamin Cother for our Out of the Archives segment. We are listening to seven wonderful clips for the Women, Politics, and Activism Project. Stay tuned. And now back to you, Ben. This is Benjamin Cothra, your host, with frequent guest and director of the Center for Oral and Public History, Natalie Fusakis. Natalie, welcome back. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We have a lot to talk about. A lot has happened since our little conversation of a couple months ago. Yes, we've had two conventions. We have a woman nominated for president. We have her opponent, Donald Trump. We have daily changing interesting moments in current history and I think it's a really good time for us to look back and and reflect on previous conventions and women in politics and all the things that we touched on the last time but take it a little bit farther. Yeah and I guess we should start with the Republicans because they had their convention first in Cleveland and I confess, when the primary season was happening, I really was anticipating the Republican convention because there was so much talk about would it be a brokered convention, would, and if not, Trump with ties to entertainment and a lot of experience in that area, I mean, he's a reality TV star, it would be a great show at least, right? A spectacle. Right. And it turned out not to be that. Um, although there was probably more action outside the convention hall than inside. Um, what did you make of the Republican convention? Um, a couple things. Number one, at least in its first couple days, the, the anti-Trump factor, and they're trying to make their voice heard and trying to get perhaps some way for the you know, the nomination process to be open and their fights on the floor and sort of people walking out, all of that had a little bit of a 1968 Democratic convention feel to me. Um, But after that first day, that sort of cleared out. And really, to me, it was a very, um, I mean, I'm not a Republican, so... I, w- really? I wouldn't. It wouldn't have been inspired necessarily, but I found it to be very a very negative um, convention about America, and not an inspiring, uplifting convention. Um, and so that that's that was really my my takeaway was the initial divisiveness, and then this sort of not and not offering up a lot of platforms for what they were actually going to do. You know, conventions are also about talking about what the Democratic or Republican Party is going to do with this new candidate as as its leader. And I didn't get that sense as much. Yeah, well, it's it reflects the divisions within the party. I mean, the convention was notable for the no shows, no former presidents, no Bushes of any kind. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Many of the key leaders of the party were not present or were there briefly and in a muted form. I'm thinking of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. It reflected, I think, the discomfort or dis-ease that the uh, party itself, the establishment part of the party at least, has with the nominee. And I'm not sure I can remember a convention where that's been the case to this degree. No, and then of course you have the Ted Cruz non-endorsement, which you know I think for all of us watching was a moment of as I listened to that speech, like everybody else, I kept waiting for him to say, he congratulates Trump, he goes through all this stuff, but he does not endorse yeah. him. And I think that's pretty unprecedented. And you had have a couple of the candidates who had said during the primary season that they would endorse the winner in the end, John Kasich and Ted Cruz, and mm-hmm. neither of them, they're still to this day not supporting him. Kasich does not attend the convention in his own state which he is the governor. I think that's a pretty telling telling moment right there. Um, I'm also struck by, in years past, we always complain about, oh, these conventions are scripted infomercials. How boring. There's no news here. Why even cover them? 
But the Republicans gave us a look at a convention that isn't very well scripted and isn't very informative, and it's not actually very good TV. <laughs> it didn't turn out to be uh, very entertaining uh, to see it that way. I don't know if it struck you that way. Maybe I'm thinking in hindsight about how uh, well choreographed the Democratic convention seemed to be. Well, I definitely think there was a stark contrast there. And I think for me, I ended up being more entertained by the commentary by the news channels after the day at the convention than I was by what was going on. Usually, even I would get angry at policies that are being put forward by um, the opposing party, and I didn't even find myself really getting angry about any of those kinds of things because there weren't any pol there were very few policies to respond to. I was struck by I watched some of PBS's coverage, and, and David Brooks. Uh, the sour look and the sour tone in his voice. Here's a conservative who is presumably there to comment on his own party's um, doings. And the disgust, knowing that they had to fill the last hour because the convention ended early on one of the nights at least, uh, and just the lack of, of organization and cohesion was frustrating, even for conservatives, I think, um, that week. Oh, palpable. I think if you are sort of a moderate to middle of the road Republican. This was a very difficult convention. It's been a very difficult um, primary election season, um, not knowing, people are not knowing where, where to go and what to do. Um, and lots of awkward moments right. on TV as right. a result of this. And what's interesting too, uh, the Democrats had their moment of okay, can we bring the party together because of the Bernie Sanders campaign? Sanders and Trump, it seems to me, represented wings of their parties of voters disaffected with what's now being called, I think, I guess accurately, the establishment, right? That, that seems to have taken for granted certain elements of the electorate. Um, do you think that's the case? And if so, how does... Clinton, in particular, fold those, those Sanders supporters in in a way that, that's credible and that keep, maintains enough support so that she, she wins the way the polls say she's going to win. Do you think that party unity actually was achieved by the Democrats? I, I think that coming out of their convention, the Democrats looked better and more unified than the Republicans did. That's not to say that the first couple days of the Democratic convention were extremely disconcerting yes. for those of us who are worried about um, being strong coming into November. And Bernie Sanders had done so well in the primary and some of his supporters were so passionate to the point where they're you know, not willing to endorse Clinton and were very vocal about all of that. And if you're looking at unifying your party against a Donald Trump candidacy, this, at least the first couple of days, did not make me feel very um, comfortable. Yeah, it was tenuous. For but sure. I think there's a couple differences. I do think you're right that the Sanders and Trump tap into a similar anger um, on two sides of the spectrum. And in some cases, I'm not even sure it's two sides because I heard people who said, oh, well, I, I'm going to, if I don't vote for Sanders, I'm going to vote for Trump or uh, Trump's made me mad now, so I'll vote for Sanders. I don't see how, if you actually listen to the policies, there's a lot of similarity there, but it was tapping into a, I mean, I, I think there was a, a commonality of angry white males. Um, well, an anger at things like free trade, which haven't delivered as promised. Right. And that's, a, that's not just a Republican or a Democratic policy. That's, I mean, Obama's still pushing for a Trans-Pacific right. trade deal. And uh, on the Republican side, at least, hey, people have figured out after 30 years of being told that tax cuts for the wealthy will trickle down. <laughs> Guess what? They haven't trickled down. The, the wealth has not trickled down, and the opportunity has dried up, and people know. People know that they've been sold a kind of and, bill of and, goods. And Trump has really fed into it, very much like previous eras in American history where you scapegoat. If, if jobs are hard to come by, wages are suppressed, then you look at the people who are newest here who are different and and Trump is in a long line. He's not doing anything that's much different than the 
know-nothing party did in the 19th century that um, we did in the 1920s when we changed the immigration laws that people, and then during the depression, right, deporting, deporting people, deporting American citizens who happened to be of Mexican heritage because people in the Southwest said, well, they're taking our jobs. Um, And so this to me is not, it's surprising and shocking to me that it happening in the 21st century, but just like you as a historian, I see the long view and I say this is the same. There's some similar things happening right now, unique economic context, but you know, it's very easy to, people need to point fingers at whose fault this is. And certainly the Republicans aren't gonna say it's our economic policies that are at fault. What's interesting too to me is that you would think that this kind of uh, rhetoric and this kind of appeal would have been stronger in 2012, closer to the Great Recession, than in 2016, four years out. I think it's a case of people's expectations not being met, which feels like a loss, right? They expected things to be better than they are, and it feels like they got worse because of it. Um, well, and an in certain parts of the country, things haven't really recovered. Yeah. Um, and that's and they've been suffering economically for a long time. So it's not surprising people are angry, and I think they are rightfully angry. Um, it's just who do you, what you know, what do you explain as the problem, and how do you go about fixing it, and who has the right answer to fixing that? And what's the theme that resonates? And clearly, for the Republicans, from Rudolph Giuliani with his Mussolini-like hand gestures during his speech, which were just striking to me. Uh, or Trump's speech, which was, I think, 70 minutes long. Uh, The theme was law and order. And I was reminded very much of the Nixon playbook from 1968, appealing to the silent majority. The difference now, though, is that's not a silent majority anymore, it seems to me. Uh, At least it's not a a strong electoral majority. The Barack Obama coalition has created a new kind of majority, and I don't know that the old silent majority playbook can work because the demographics have changed so much. However, I did see a bumper sticker while I was driving down 395 the other day that said, the silent majority supports Donald Trump, so they're clearly (laughs) trying to tap into uh, this old, I think you're right, I don't think it's the same, but I do think there's some people are trying to tap into that same feeling to try to have the success that Nick Nixon was very successful with his strategy, but it was a different time and a different context. And a different country. Immigration had just been opened up again, and now we've had several decades of it, and the the demographics are very different. I think the polls are showing Trump is at about about between zero and one percent among African Americans, and somewhere around the 10 percent range with uh, Hispanics. And um, And with women, it's pretty bad as well. With women, it's pretty bad. So there's, there's, it's not quite the right message if you're trying to build a majority in 2016, it seems. Right. Um, well, how about the Democrats? One advantage Hillary Clinton had, despite the Sanders insurgency and the, the catcalls and the noise made the, the first day or two of the convention, she had a lineup of sluggers in the middle of her batting order <laughs> that, that were not uh, paralleled at all by the Republicans. The Republicans put up Giuliani and Scott Baio. The Democrats had Bill Clinton, Michelle Obama, Joe Biden, Barack Obama. Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren. And maybe the star of all of them, surprising Mr. Khan, whose son had been killed in Afghanistan, who turned out to make the speech that maybe was the most emotional and affecting of the entire convention, all that before Hillary Clinton took the stage. Uh, How do you think that bolstered her, gave her, what, an edge of credibility that the party can give her, that the Republicans couldn't give Trump? How did it set her up? Because in the end, of course, it's her convention and it's her moment. Well, I think it set her up very well. Um, First of all, you had Michelle Obama's speech on Monday night that until the Khan speech, I think people would have said that was the most eloquent, most unifying speech. I mean, it had, she calmed some of the Sanders people down, at least momentarily, Mm -hmm. um, explained without, you know, even using Trump why 
his name, you should be supporting Hillary. I found it interesting that she gave this amazing speech after all the controversy over yeah. <laughs> uh, Ivanka Trump and. Do you, you think know, she plagiarized from Melania Trump? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, so I, I, you know, and then it's rare that the sitting president comes and gives the kind of endorsement that yes. they usually actually stay away from the convention mm -hmm. to give the new candidate time to, but I think the Democrats, when you're talking about being smart about scripting a convention, they want to win. Mm -hmm. And the Obama coalition needs to hold for them to win. Right. And so for Obama to come in, and also Obama could speak from a place of, I ran against this woman. Exactly. We were foes eight years ago, but then look what happened. I moved past that. I asked her to be my Secretary of State. We worked together, and now she's running for president. And you know, she's more qualified for the job than I was, which is is true on yeah. paper. She's way more. It was extraordinary more. for him to say that, and it was true. Uh, yeah, it was about as full an endure. It was the full weight of the office being used politically there in a way that I could I can't remember another sitting president doing that. Did Clinton even speak for Gore in two thousand? There was an effort to distance Gore and Clinton. I, I'm not Clinton sure that he did. I, think I don't. He did. I don't I remember. But we would have to go back and check that. So. But Gore wanted to be seen as his own candidate, and of course, we're coming off the Lewinsky scandal and some of the other scandals right. in the Clinton administration, and relations were a little frostier than they had been <laughs> back when they took their bus tour right. in '92. So I don't think that that happened. Um, and Bush, George W. Bush, was sort of persona non grata in 2008 right. when, uh, when Mitt Romney uh, was nominated by the Republicans. So I, I think you're right. It's been a, if it, if it hasn't happened in, it hasn't happened in a while at least that a sitting president has given that kind of full-throated at the convention right. um, speech in favor of, of the nominee. But let's talk about the nominee. This is really important. This is historic. This has never happened before in American history. Uh, one thing that strikes me is that that's about as far as a lot of the conversation has gone. She's the first woman to be nominated by a major political party for president. But there's a lot of history behind that. A lot of history had to happen before we got to this point. What are the teachable moments that you can think of um, that Hillary Clinton's nomination has given us? Well, I think two, a couple of things. Number one, I think she really embraced the history of it this time much more than she did in 2008. In 2008, I think, you know, she didn't make it this far anyway, but I, there wasn't as much embracing. And this time I really felt, as you saw her on the campaign trail, there was a different tone towards ab about being the first woman. She was okay with saying, even though there was all kinds of controversy, you shouldn't vote just for her because she's a woman mm -hmm. and all this sort of thing. But I do think she embraced that historic moment um, differently. And I, there were, for those of us who read a lot about women in politics, there have been a lot of articles, especially right around the time of her nomination and, and even since then, that have looked back historically at the women that came before her. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talking about sort of the first woman to run for national office, Jeanette Rankin in 1916, the New Yorker just had a great piece a week or two ago about her candidacy and looking at the language that was used about Jeanette Rankin a hundred years ago mm -hmm. and the similarities between that and um, the way we talk about Hillary Clinton. But also, I think, in terms of candidates that ran for president or even vice president, in the case of Geraldine Ferraro, you had Shirley Chisholm mm -hmm. in 1972. And there were a lot of historians looking back and saying, we really need to look to Chisholm as a place, um, as one of the key predecessors to Hillary Clinton's candidacy. And you know, Chisholm saying, I knew I wasn't going to win, but I did it because somebody had to run some woman needed to run for president and make it easier for the next person. She was thinking ahead. She was thinking ahead. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have the historic nomination of Geraldine Ferraro in 1984. Um, and more than a few of the women that we've interviewed for our Women, Politics, and Activism project 
Oral History Project have mentioned Ferraro and her nomination as a um, an important moment. And at at the time, I think they thought even more important than it turned out to be. Um, they talk about being emotional and you know crying, seeing the historic importance of this. And then you know even one woman in her interview said. Um, something along the lines of there will never be a ticket without a woman on the ticket that she and her friends had been talking and one of them had said this at mm -hmm. the convention and then she reflected on the fact that of course it took from 1984 until 2008 before you had another woman on the ticket um, and in remember Sarah Palin. It, remember at that moment in the 80s Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of Britain it didn't seem far-fetched once that that move had been made to think that this was going to become a normal thing and well and it's, it's certainly while we didn't have a woman on the national ticket what we know as historians is actually the 80s and 90s were the peak for women's involvement in elected office right right now we're operating with women are 19 percent of congress mm -hmm. they're 24 percent of elected state office um in whether you're in california or elsewhere um, there are states where there has never been a, a woman governor. There are states where there have never been a woman even holding a statewide office still. So, um, but back in the, the 90s, we, we were up close to 30% and moving mm -hmm. what seemed like in a direction of growth. And um, since then, it's actually women's involvement. How do you account for that? Um, well, I've been trying to figure that out. That's one of the things that I've been trying to figure out with this project. I think a couple things. Um, I think one one thing I've been playing with, and you know, this will be the first time I've said this out loud, is at least locally, right? So right now there's only one woman on the LA City Council, um, and there's been less women in the California legislature since the 90s. It's ironic to me that just as women are making it further into politics that you have um, term limits come into play mm. at a point when in the 90s women are peaking and that's when term limits are the most extreme. In the state legislature they make it six years. It's now been moved to 12 because people realize that in six it takes you six years to figure out what you're doing. Yeah. Um, in same thing happened on the LA City Council. They went from no term limits to two terms, eight years, and it's now been extended to 12 because they realized, but all of this ironically happened literally at the time when women were peaking in their political involvement. So coincidence, I don't think it was some kind of, you know, concerted effort by people to keep women out, but I do think that that part of what allows women to get other women involved is you have to be an experienced woman politician, enough time there, to then be able to mentor and get younger women involved. And I think it's a much harder thing to do if you're in your first term or your second term of office. And really, you need to have been there a bit longer before you can start helping to bring other women up with you. Right. So, and then I think not having models. You know, right. what, what some of the things that have been out about what we can benefit from the Clinton, I think young girls will know from the get go I can be president if she wins and becomes president of the United States. No girl will ask the question I asked myself, why hasn't there been a woman president? Could I be the woman president? They will go, look, there is somebody who's been, you know, same with African-Americans now. You can see and look at Barack Obama. And I think it will change young people's, not just running for office potential, but also their just engagement in po politics in general. Because that's the other thing that social scientists teach us about this is that we don't, women don't talk about politics Parents don't talk about politics with their girls as much as they talk about politics with their boys. Women don't think about a career in politics in the way that um, men think about a career in politics. But if you've had a woman sitting president, there may be conversations. And even if you don't run for office, you're now going to be a little bit more engaged because there is a role model there. I think you. the time is coming to just look at our college campuses where the the gender imbalance is pretty strong in some campuses even on our campus at cal state fullerton it's more than 50 percent female maybe 55 i'm not sure what the latest numbers are i don't know what this falls enrollment shows us 
and more and more of those young women are um, second generation immigrant, third generation. There's going to be an educated band of women, generation of women, I think, that is going to, out of that large pool, surely there are going to be more people who are interested in getting invested in politics. Um, I just can't imagine that you have that much of the uh, female population of the country college educated and in engaged in that way and not see the results down the line somewhere in electoral politics. I would expect that to change in a few years, but maybe, maybe not. <laughs> we can so, hope. I ho it would be a nice change. You know, something that struck me thinking about gender and the two conventions and the two candidates. Um, these are gross uh, generalizations, so you can feel free to put me in my place here, <laughs> as you want to do. Um, it struck me that the message Trump gave was a very traditional, masculine, uh, strong father kind of message. Uh, I I'm going to do this. I'm going to set it right. We're going to have law, we're going to have order, and I'm the one to do it. I mean, he, I'm almost quoting him there. He right. said that on several points during his speech. It's a very sort of strong father, father knows best kind of, I'm going to protect the, the family type of approach. Uh, the Clinton message was quite different. It was, we're all in this together. We've got to do this together. We, no one person can do it alone. I remember when uh, a colleague of mine at the Missouri History Museum was doing a book on women's history in St. Louis. Her, she's an excellent public historian. Her name is Catherine Corbett. And Kathy started doing this project. And I remember I walked down the hall one day, and there she was in a room with a circle of people. They were all women. And I didn't know what was, what was happening. Later on, I ran to her and said, what, what, what was that meeting? She said, oh, we're doing my book. I said, I said what is that? What was what that? <laughs> You're, the, she said, oh, well, you know how we women do things. We do it together. Everyone takes a piece, then we get together and we talk about it. This is the way we do things. We do it together. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting model. That's not the model for traditional scholarship, but it's a model that for her was rooted in her concept of feminism, and, and it fit the subject matter that she was talking about in this book. Um, and people took different parts of the book and wrote different parts of it. Um, and I thought, well, that, that's the, that was the Clinton message. <laughs> it was, it, it takes all of us. It was, goes back to her book, It Takes a Village, right? It seemed to me that that was a more traditionally feminine approach to problem solving than Trump's. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I would say that not all women lead that way, but we ask the women in the Women, Politics and Activism Oral History Project you know, what, what are the differences between the, the way men and women lead? And mo more than a few, and I might even, you know, take a stab and say the majority have said something along the lines of, and they say, look, it's not everybody, but women are much more collaborative. Women are much more willing to reach out and have these conversations and work together. That doesn't mean they don't, they always agree, but there is a different style. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem people have with seeing Hillary as a presidential candidate is we don't know what a female presidential candidate looks like. Mm -hmm. Our idea of leadership is male. Until Obama, it was white male. Mm -hmm. You know, if you pick a leader that people point out in, in the United States, they would pick the president probably 90% of the time, you know, that they could point their finger at as a male leader, mm -hmm. you know. And so to have a woman, she's going to speak in a different style. She's going to obviously wear, a, you know, everything about Hillary shakes up, even though she's also a white woman. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we don't know, people don't know what to do with her in a way because we don't have a model of previous women leaders making it to that level in the United States. They're all over the world. We are really mm -hmm. not doing well worldwide. I think we're like 58th in the world now in terms of women leadership, <laughs> women in leadership positions or something like that. 
we've just been going further and further um, downward while other nations and other you know countries in the world are actually taking a lead. But if you think about the ethos of rugged individualism, which is part of American mythology, that's very much a masculine idea, isn't it? Of course. You, st you know, it's John Wayne, right? Well, and when Hillary has tried to act like a, or any other, I mean, uh, Barbara Boxer, mm -hmm. you know, used to get criticized for the way she talked. It, you know, this is not something, the women in our project will also tell you all about the ways women are characterized if they speak in a strong voice, you know, if they are assertive, then they're called a bitch as opposed to, you know, which, excuse my language, but that's, those are the terms that are used for women when they step out of what's sort of a traditional so, role. So you're damned if you do, you're damned yeah, if you don't. You can't if really... you function in a tr as a traditional woman, well, that's not good enough to lead. If you function as a traditional leader, well, you're out of place and you don't sound right. Right, because well, a few times that Hillary kind of, you know, Sanders was the king of sort of yelling and inspiring <laughs> yes. people by these, you know, and I get why people were inspired by him. But when Hillary tries to do that, she gets, you know, she can't. Right. She can, but she will end up, there'll be an article the next day about how, you know, she was yelling at the crowd. Yeah. Well, finally, she figured out a hairstyle and wardrobe that elicits far less comment than she used to get. That used to be a daily thing, practically, with right. with Hillary Clinton. Um, there are, I think we talked about this a little bit last time. There are bars that women seem to have to to, to clear, that men don't have to clear. Appearance is one of them. Um, uh, another one, you know, somebody mentioned this. I, I can't remember where I saw it, but the but the idea that Trump could stand up there with children from three different women and be uh, lauded and nominated as the president. If Hillary Clinton had tried to stand up there with children from three different husbands, is that even conceivable? Not, not <laughs> that's, conceivable. That's not conceivable, right? Right. So there are some definite, I mean, she's got to exist both within and, and then also push those, those barriers at the same time. It's a, it's a really tricky act she has to, to pull off. One hopes that at least if she if she wins and she becomes the president of the United States for four years she's going to be who she's going to be and if that's all it is is four years then we will at least have had a different model. Yeah. Some people are not going to like it. There are people who are always going to find fault you know but at least she will be there and we will get to see how it plays out. Now, we've got debates coming up, I think September, near the end of September is the first debate. Uh, how do you think this gender issue will play out in the campaign this fall? What do you expect from Trump and what do you expect from Clinton? Uh, will the fact of her being a woman be a factor in the conversation, in the campaign, in the debates? Do you expect it to come up or is it something that's going to be ignored? And should it be ignored? I don't think it's going to be ignored. Uh, I don't know that it will come up in the debates. I don't think Trump's going to say, as a woman, you're not qualified to be president. I don't think we're going to get any of that kind of conversation. I think it's going to be much more subtle. Mm. Um, I do think people will still continue to write about it. And where she will benefit is, look, there are lots of organizations out there that have been waiting for a woman who, you know, whether it's um, pro-choice organizations, explicitly feminist organizations, all of those organizations, some of which I pay attention to, are going to put the full force of their organizing skills behind her. Um, and they will probably be more explicit about it than some other entities. Um, and I think there will continue, there's, you know, there's pretty much an article every week more than one that talks about gender and politics. So I don't think it's going away. Do I think it's going to be a topic of conversation between Clinton and Trump? No, I think there's going to be other things that Trump will focus on, even if under the surface, maybe somewhere there's, he'll use more subtle ways to get at the fact that, you know, we have her, he'll try to disqualify her as a presidential candidate. Well, the fact is he has dealt with gender. Right. And that's why he's pulling so badly with women, right? I mean, he has found ways to talk about it without talking about it. 
Well, in his past commentary, you know, he doesn't even have to say anything now. People are digging up all the things that he has said about women before he decided to run for president. And, and a lot of them are not very um, complimentary. Right. Do we expect policy issues that have, at least in the past, been characterized as women's issues, even if they're really family issues or just plain important issues, do we expect those to get a greater play because Hillary Clinton is the candidate? I'm thinking of something dear to your heart, like child care. Well, I, I will say this. I will say that she is talking about those issues, I think, in a way that's different than any of the male Democrats before her, male Republicans before her, traditional women's issues, but she's labeling them as family issues, right? right? Um, equal pay for women, uh, child care, um, family leave, things that, that help families, but really help you have two earners in the household. Um, and child care, I mean, it wasn't just uh, it was Trump's daughter who who really she brought up child care at the Republican convention, and Hillary's been talking about child care for a long time, um, and and how her policies. And so, as I was telling you earlier, that the New York Times had an editorial yesterday, and it was really talking about how child care is being discussed in the campaign in a way that child care has not been discussed. How do you get affordable, quality child care for more families in the United States? Um, and I think Clinton will continue, especially if you're talking about she links all of these things to economics too, right. right? You know, and if you if you if you build women up and women make more money, then a family does better. If you give them childcare, then all here are all the reasons why a family is better able to support itself and contribute to the economy. So, I think she will continue whether Trump goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with her on those mm -hmm. things? That's the question. I'm, I, I don't know. I, Will he provide an alternative uh, to her plans? Will he question her plans? Or will he avoid it entirely? Yeah, I mean, he you just has don't know provided an alternative child care plan, but it does not help as many Americans as hers does. Um, it's not something he's made a major speech on yet. No, and I don't know that he will. I think he's going to stick to his bread and butter issues. You know, law and order, immigration, you know, keeping the NRA happy, the things that, you know, have gotten him, kept him that core of his supporters going. It's going to be a fascinating fall. These debates will be closely watched, I'm sure. If for nothing else, Trump is so unpredictable, you just don't know what he'll say, right? Right. <laughs> um, I look forward to watching it. Thanks for being with us. Let's hear from our own archivist, Natalie Navarre, in our segment, Out of the Archives. She's got some material from the Women, Politics, and Activism Project. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Center for World Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. Every podcast COF has, Out of the Archives is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories of women, mainly from our most current oral history project, Women, Politics, and Activism Since Suffrage, or to shorten it, the WPA Project. This project has been selected by the John Randolph Haynes and Dora Haynes Foundation for a major research grant. Our director, Dr. Natalie Fusakis, is leading the oral history project. To reiterate the podcast from last month, the first phase of this project involves interviewing 300 to 400 women in Southern California who've been actively engaged in politics and activism from the post-World War II era to the present. We want to document these women's voices to demonstrate the myriad of ways women have participated in activism from formal elected office to local community-based organizations. Throughout this segment, we will be listening to clips of oral histories where women from the WPA project talk about the different leadership styles between men and women. Dr. Vesekis talks about these clips in the podcast. The first clip you will listen to comes from an oral history with Dr. Kimberly Salter. She is the co-president of Orange County Now, the National Organization for Women, a nonprofit organization devoted to achieving full equality for women through education and litigation. This interview was conducted by Janelle Vinoy on October 29th, 2014. Listen as she discusses the differences in how men and women lead. I see a difference in how some men and some women lead. I think, and I've done a lot of work in corporate America because I'm a corporate psychologist, and I have seen a lot of women 
stumble over their own feet. I've seen a lot of women defeat themselves by trying to lead the male way. Um, and I, it's tough. It's tough because corporate America is very much a male-run arena. Um, and you win with power. You win by being louder, by being stronger, by being bigger, by being meaner. And women, it's a lose-lose for women. Because if you are all those things, you might think you're going to lead, but it gets held against you. Um, and if you come off as the demure, quiet, supportive, then you get no power at all. So there's a fine line I think women walk being true to themselves, speaking up for themselves, and being assertive rather than aggressive. Mm. And it's a very fine line. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Michelle Martinez. She's a city councilwoman for Santa Ana and current candidate for the Orange County Board of Supervisors. This oral history was conducted by WPA project manager Abby Waldrup on July 8th, 2015. When she was asked about her leadership style, this was her answer. Uh, I don't let the ego get in the way. And I think that's what makes, I think more so even women and men, when you look at politics, um, we tend to govern um, without an ego. And politics for men, they tend to govern with an ego. And I think that's what separates. And I sit on a seven-member council. Two of us are females. I'm, not, I'm a very assert, assertive leader. My other colleague is, is very sub, more, more submissive and, you know, goes along to get along. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, um, I'm, you know, I'm leading the charge. But leading the charge, hoping that they're right next to me. I'm not trying to leave anyone behind. So I'm always the first one to speak up. To, uh, and, um, and if I have an idea, I'm willing to share that and take the credit. Um, and that, that's just been me. When I was younger, that was, it was a little different. Those are my ideas. You didn't do anything. You're lazy, X, Y, and Z. And I've learned that you can't bring people along that way if you're just always tearing them down. Right? Is that how do you lift, uplift one another and work with one another so that we all succeed? The next narrator I will highlight is Dr. Sue Savory. She is the current candidate for Congress for the 48th District of California. This interview was also conducted by Abby Waldrop on February 2nd, 2016. Listen as she talks about the differences she sees between the leadership styles between men and women. Katrina Foley, a lovely lawyer in her 40s, and she's been on the city council in Costa Mesa for 16 years or between the city and the school board stands or sits in the city council and Jim Riegheimer, the mayor, heavy duty, hardcore conservative, gets this close to her nose, screams at her in the board meetings where there's not the public. And I said, you don't need to take that, Katrina. And she said, no, I'm a lawyer, Sue, and I'm just waiting for the day he loses control and touches me. Because if he touches me, he's going to jail. And he knows that, and he knows I know that. But I can take the heat on this one. And isn't that an interesting thing for a woman who has been elected to the city council to even have to think about? But that's that abusive dominance kind of model. And I think, and part of it is a little bit, that we don't have the physical dominance. So women have had to learn other mechanisms to function effectively uh, in this male world that where the power is in our country. Um, that doesn't mean in every home, because in a lot of homes it's not about male power at all. But um, women have learned that they have to be smarter, they have to find a better way, they have to find ways to um, create wins for various people. So I do think that the dominance model versus the uh, win-win model is probably in, in, a, in moving things forward the most visible difference. And it will be the battle that we're watching with Hillary and the boys, all of them, including Bernie. Um, because to men, creating that win-win, never, never, um, what's the, the phrase the Tea Party used? Never, never um, compromise. You made compromise the dirty word. It's the foundation of our whole entire society.
The fourth snippet comes from an oral history with Anita Torres. She's a longtime labor organizer working for organizations like the United Farm Workers Union, as well as local organizations like Emerge New Mexico. This oral history was conducted by me on March 28, 2015. Listen as she too describes the differences she sees between men and women in leadership positions. I think that we're, you know, our brains are different to some degree. Um, we're also uh, raised differently or, I don't know, it's a different culture growing up female versus male. Um, women, I think, have a tendency to be more about community and about family. And even after working for Emerge New Mexico, I really see that, that uh, once women hold office and are in power, their interest is more in legislation that benefits family, that benefits community. Um, I tend to think, and I may be wrong about this, but I would tend to think that men are more geared towards things that are about business about um, it's more an attitude of raising yourself up by your bootstraps versus an attitude of women which is more about raising the community up as a whole raising a family up as a whole um, what does a family need to be successful and provide for the family as a whole to provide for children in terms of their their broad needs. So that's that's what I would think. The next clip you'll listen to comes from an oral history with Marilee Scaff. She is a 101-year-old Claremont activist, as well as a longtime member and past president of the League of Women Voters. This interview was conducted by Abby Waldrop on March 11, 2016. Listen as Marilee gives her opinion on the same question. Oh, I do think women have, tend to have a different leadership style from men, tend to have. Uh, that's not true of every person or individual. I think in general women are more inclined to reach out and be more horizontal in their relation to people and men tend to like to be the top of the heap. I don't personally wish, to, I'm not trying to be the top of the heap. I am trying to get things that would happen. But I think women's way of working tends to be more collegial, more community oriented and less ego-centered, and I think you can look at, you look at these presidential speeches, and oh boy, can you see it. There it is. And it's one of the reasons we need more women in government, because I think, for example, I think Los Angeles County, though I didn't object to the old people that were there, Los Angeles County is much helped by having two strong women come in on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, there are some things they will simply see with more insight and will be more concerned to see happen. And that has to do usually with the general welfare, the spread of who the people are and where they are and how they need help. And it's more sense of where they are and how you help them, not where they are and you tell them what to do. So I think women are usually more insightful leaders. Now, that doesn't mean they ought not to work with the men. I think they obviously need to, but I think society needs them there too. I also would point out that no society which keeps women under wraps is using its own strengths. Women have strengths that they would contribute to the public good, and they need to be freed up to do it. It will be a better society for that. I haven't any debate on that score. <laughs> the sixth clip I will highlight comes from an interview with Marisol Rivera. She is the current vice president of the Service Employees International Union of Orange County, as well as a longtime labor organizer. This oral history was conducted by Analia Cabral on March 26, 2016. Listen to Marisol's different yet similar answer to the same question. Um, I don't think there's a difference, but... Um uh, we do have a different mentality, or we could see things a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of feel that um, there's like this um, stereotype, right? That the women are more soft, 
right than the guys and so i don't i don't think that way you know i kind of think that um the women are more strong um in every single aspect you know like you know we carry a baby in our stomach and you know we're mom and you know we work but at the same time we have to go back home and make sure that we cook mm -hmm. and we do you know all these things and so um yeah you know kind of feel that way <laughs> For the last clip, I will highlight Kathy Unger's oral history. One busy woman, she is a longtime political strategist and fundraising consultant for the Democratic Party in Los Angeles. This interview was conducted by Dr. Natalie Fusakis on February 2, 2016. This snippet is particularly important because it shows the importance of what Dr. Fusakis was saying in her part of the podcast. Hillary's presence, as well as Geraldine Ferraro's in 1984, is important for little girls and women in the United States. If you just think about you know, and it is, it's kind of the right time. And, you know, little girls who, you know, don't understand that the reason that they're able to play sports is, you know, Title IX. And, and, you know, it's not even, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, we didn't think about playing sports. But, you know, now it's a, it's a given. But, you know, they, they think they can do anything. And maybe they don't call themselves feminists, and that's fine. Um, but, um, but she will be such an example for them. Um, and you know, I'm, I guess, sort of an emotional person. And I happened to be talking to somebody the other day about the 1984 convention, which was in San Francisco. And it's when we were, we were supporting Gary Hart who lost, but Walter Mondale nominated Geraldine Ferraro and I mean, first of all, we cried. Then we, you know, marched around the whole, uh, you know, convention center, you know, and, and somebody made the statement at the time, well, there'll never be a ticket without a woman, you know, on the ticket. Anyway, little did we know. Uh, but, but those kinds of things, those, you know, more than symbolic, but even, even if it's only symbolic, even if that's the only reason, it just feels good for whoever, you know. I hope you all enjoyed these clips. If anyone is interested in any of these oral histories, you can come on by to cough, and either I or one of my coworkers will help you. Along with the Women in Politics and Activism Project, we have around 300 oral history projects that contain almost 6,000 oral histories. Go to our website at cough.fullerton.edu to research more. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. I hope to see you soon, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. That was Natalie Navarre with our Out of the Archives segment. I'd like to thank Natalie Fusekis, Director of the Center for Oral and Public History, for being with us on this episode of Outspoken. Natalie, good to hear from you as always. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And we will check back in later on, perhaps around the time of the election itself. I hope we do. All right. Thanks. And that does it for this episode of Outspoken from the Center for Oral and Public History. This is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time.